Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would just be exalted um, as we turn our attention to your word. We pray that uh, you would you would make it clear to us that we would hear everything that you say uh, to us through your word. We pray that... Um, we would, we would be changed and transformed by your word, Lord, that it would not find us empty vessels, Lord, but we would be full of rich soil for it to, for the seed of the word to fall in and bring forth a harvest 60, uh, 30, 60, 100 fold, Lord, that we would uh, be pleasing to you in the way that we respond to your word. And so we thank you for this in Jesus' name. God, we, I pray that you would help me to be a faithful uh, steward of your truth today. I pray that you would just um, say everything that you want to say uh, through me this morning. And God, that I would not uh, uh, see, fail to say anything that you want to say. And Lord, that I would not say more than you want to say, um, but I would be faithful to you, Lord. And so I thank you for this, Jesus, and pray that you would just be glorified more than anything, that you would be glorified today uh, in our time together. And so I ask all this in the precious, holy name of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I'm so glad to see you here this morning. We're in our third uh, message in our series of the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. Um, we've come to the church of Pergamum after last week and the week before we did Ephesus and Smyrna. And this book from the get-go, or this letter rather, from the get-go, um, starts off differently. In this book, Jesus identifies himself as the speaker, in this letter rather, he identifies himself as the speaker with more intensity than he did either to Ephesus or to Smyrna. Remember what he says? He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now remember in the other letters, like in Ephesus, he said he was the one who holds the seven stars in his hands, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In Smyrna, he said, I am the first and the last who died and came to life. But here he, he has this image, this, this fierce image of, of Jesus, he, he describes himself as one holding a two-edged, a sharp two-edged sword. 
And when I read that, I, I wondered in myself, if you and I have grown so accustomed to this image of Christ standing meekly with open arms, ready to receive us on any terms whatsoever, that, that we saw him as a, a, a savior that was full of grace, but couldn't dare see him as full of truth. I wondered if our minds cannot conceive of Jesus standing before our church with a sword unsheathed in his hand, ready to judge and to punish and to sever all that is defiled and all that is unholy. And that may be a hard image for us to wrap our mind around, but look what's happening here. This is exactly how Christ presented himself. This is how he came to the church at Pergamum. But this isn't an unusual depiction of Jesus Christ in Scripture, not by any stretch. In the Old Testament, um, before the incarnation of Jesus, before he was born in a manger in Bethlehem, we always celebrate at Christmas, the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Joshua just as Israel was about to cross the Jordan, to enter the, the promised land, to conquer it uh, according to God's word. And this is what happens. If you look in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, this incredible scene unfolds before our eyes. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, the first city that they conquered, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... A man was standing before him. How was he standing? With a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said to him, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. Now what does all that mean? Joshua sees this man, this figure, sword drawn, ready for battle. And Joshua asks a very rational, reasonable question to a guy who's standing with a sword drawn as they're about to go into battle. He says, hey, excuse me, may I ask, are you on our side or theirs? And this commander of the Lord's host makes something very clear that we should never forget. He says, I have not come to take sides, I've come to take over. He's saying, I'm in charge here. This is not your battle, Joshua. It's my battle. But it continues, this theme of Christ continues even in the New Testament. John the Baptist, who was the herald of the Messiah, who would announce his arrival, was prophesied at least by uh, two prophets um, uh, that, that are attributed in the New Testament to this uh, coming of the Messiah. He says in Matthew three twelve, he's talking about Jesus, and he says his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenched fire. And he saw Christ's role, John saw Christ's role, not as just the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He did see that. He's the one who proclaimed that. But he also saw him as the one who would separate the wheat among his people, the valuable wheat from the worthless husks to be burned. And this letter to Pergamum teaches those who walk in the fear of the Lord. This is a real interesting contrast for those of us even today. It teaches those who walk in the fear of the Lord that they have nothing to fear from the Lord, but will receive his mercy. 
And yet it also teaches us in the strongest possible terms that those who treat Christ with contempt will have great reason to fear and tremble before him. Malachi chapter 3 verse 2, the book we just did a few weeks ago. He says this, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? We always imagine the coming of the Lord, the the coming day of the Lord to be a, a, a day of joy and beauty and wonder. And it will be for some of us. But for others, it will be a day of unspeakable terror. And so we, we, we have this image of Christ with sword unsheathed coming to the, the church of Pergamum. So let's dive into the book, what he says. He starts out in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, how would you like to be a realtor in Pergamum and say, yes, come to the garden city of Turkey. We've got, we are where Satan's throne is. I grew up in a city that I thought was pretty much like Pergamum. (laughs) Like in the other letters, Jesus proclaims to the church his omniscience. What I'm saying there is that Jesus knows everything. There is nothing Jesus doesn't know. And this is important. I know I keep hammering this away every time we do one of these letters, but it's so important. See, because what he's saying in Pergamum's case is that he knows the cultural climate that exists there. And he also knows how it impacts the people that are trying to be faithful to Jesus there. He knows how it impacts their lives of faith. And so how, what does that mean to you? You may not regard where you live as the throne room of Satan, But you should take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows, Jesus knows the pressures that make your life particularly hard. He knows your struggles. He takes them into account and he pities you. He knows, listen to me, some of you do not realize this, Jesus knows where you grew up. Jesus knows in what family you were a part. Jesus knows how there's people at work and at school who belittle your beliefs and who mock your faith. He knows the strains in your life that sap your strength and discourage you. He knows the relationships in your life that are frayed and broken and, and and all of your sinful dispositions. And listen to me, what this tells us is that even if you live in the very place where Satan is enthroned, he knows. And he's compassionate towards you in your struggle there. Now, don't misread me. I'm not patting you on the head as a poor little victim. I'm saying this doesn't give you an excuse to quit, but it gives you the confidence that if Jesus knows it, surely he'll supply the strength to you to overcome. Surely. And so what does the throne room of Satan look like? Well, Pergamum was devoted to the worship of Caesar. It was a a center of imperial cult worship. And everyone who lived in Pergamum was required to worship Caesar Augustus, who by this time was dead, but he, he had been deified by the Romans and you had to worship him. In fact, you would be required to take a loyalty pledge to, to, to go to the temple, throw your offering in there and say, Caesar is Lord. And then you could go on your merry way. Romans wouldn't trouble you. But you can imagine 
if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this would create significant difficulties, wouldn't it? See, there were Christians in the city of Pergamum living there, struggling to remain faithful. And for them to say, Jesus is Lord, it wasn't just a pseudo-evangelistic catchphrase to slap on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. But it was a countercultural declaration that could literally get them arrested, it could get them tortured, it could get them killed, and some of them actually were. Pergamum had a, 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 a temple to the, to the god of healing. And it had a huge altar of Zeus that still exists to this day. In Smyrna, you'll remember that the trouble for the people of God arose from the Jewish sector, from what Jesus called the synagogue of Satan. But Christians in Pergamum were getting it from an opposite direction. They were facing pagan resistance. And yet Christ, walking in the midst of their churches, remember he walks among the lampstands, the lampstands represent the churches, walking in the midst of the churches, he noticed something. And I hope with all of my heart that the same could be said of me and that the same could be said of our church if we were under similar circumstances. In Revelation 2, 13, Jesus says, with all of the fact that they live in the throne room of Satan, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Man, don't you want that to be your testimony? Don't you want it to be, no matter what you face, that your testimony would be, I am not budging. The church in Pergamum, many of them were steadfast. They were unmovable, even under trials that most of us cannot begin to fathom. And Jesus, the Christ, commended them for it. And notice in this commendation that Jesus gives them, that, that, that they haven't denied the faith, uh, they haven't denied his name. Notice in that that he connects his glorious name with our faith in him. And what he's saying is you cannot be considered faithful to Christ if you deny the name of Christ. Now that might sound like an obvious statement. But what I mean is if you live in such a way that misrepresents his glorious name to a watching world, you cannot be considered by any true definition a Christian. Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this very passage, mentions four ways that people deny the faith. And I want to briefly take a look at each one of them. First, we deny the faith by never confessing it. There are people that maybe even in this room, that will hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over again in their lives, and yet they'll dig their heels in and never submit to the lordship of Jesus, never own him as their savior. And Jesus says in Matthew ten thirty two, so everyone who acknowledges or confesses me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So second, we deny the faith by clinging to false doctrines. I hear it all the time. Some people say, I don't like theology. Theology divides people. And sir, madam, you could not be more wrong. Nothing is more false. Right doctrine, right theology serves as a rallying point for safety for true believers. It gives them something to run to, something to cling to. So they're not just floating on the world, as, as Paul put it, cast about by waves of doctrine. 
but they're anchored by good doctrine. Theology provides, uh, or theology rather, only divides the sheep of Jesus' pasture from the goats that don't know him or recognize him. Theology matters. So what is that application to you? Can I plead with you? Learn right doctrine. Don't let me be the filter through which you hear the word of God. I want to teach you the Word of God. I love teaching you the Word of God. But crack open your Bibles yourselves. I mentioned Spurgeon earlier. Spurgeon has a very famous quote. He said, some of you have enough Bibles on your desk that you could write damnation with your finger. Open your Bible. Stubborn, unteachable people deny Christ in their stubbornness. Everything the Bible says concerning Christ's person, Christ's work, Christ's doctrine is to be our one and only infallible rule for life. Opinions and reinterpretations of Scripture made by people with hardened hearts must not entrap us. We must be unflinching in our commitment to the Word of God, rightly divided alone. And thirdly, People deny the faith by unholy living. Spurgeon once again said, a moral fault may be a denial of the faith and it may make a man worse than if he never believed at all. God save us from an unholy life. What he's saying is that if you you profess to be a Christian, especially loudly, and your life denies by your very actions that you are a Christian, it would have been better if you'd never professed to believe in Jesus Christ at all. I mean, you can play nice. You can be a decent neighbor. You can come to church. But an unholy life absolutely denies Christ and his name. And lastly, people deny the faith by actually forsaking it and resigning from the people of God, either deliberately or as they're seduced more and more by the things of this world. And in our age, our culture, we might gussy it up and call it deconstruction or something uh, more sophisticated than that. But to walk away is to deny the faith and to forsake the name of your only hope and Savior, Jesus Christ. But in Pergamum, one man stood out as an example, a paragon of faithfulness. And Jesus, again, took notice. Let's read verse 13 in in full again. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, we know nothing outside of this verse about Antipas, not a single thing, except for what this verse tells us, which is significant. It tells us that he stood for Christ, and not just anywhere, he stood for Christ in the very place where Satan dwelt, and he paid the ultimate price for it with his very own life. Now in saying this, I want you to not miss what's happening here. Christ makes Antipas not the exception to be revered because he's so different from everybody, but he makes him the example to be copied by everybody. Sometimes a great act of courage by one person leads to many other acts of courage on the part of others who are now emboldened by the original act of courage. And this is what Christ is saying. He's saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. Antipas is what it looks like to follow me. Christ gives Antipas his own title, as a matter of fact. That may have, you may have not have caught that, but he says, Antipas, my faithful witness. But if you look at Revelation 1.5, look what we read there. Jesus Christ the faithful witness. 
He gives him the exact same title that he bears for himself. What, what he's saying is that Antipas was like his Lord. Now his death, don't, I'm not starting a cult here, his death didn't have redemptive power, but he, like Jesus, died for love. Christ died because he loved Antipas. Antipas died because he loved Christ. And this, uh, this is the hardest thing to teach and preach and get people to believe in America where things are so comfortable. But this is what genuine Christianity looks like. To die, to lay down your life for Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about having martyr mentalities and, and doing stupid things to get yourself killed. I'm saying that we have such a loose grip on this life that if Christ were to call us to lay down our very last breath, we would say yes. That's what Christianity really is. But everything, unfortunately, in Pergamum wasn't a story of faithfulness to the end. As is so often the case, wolves had crept in among the sheep and weeds had sprouted in the same field where the wheat was growing. They'd been strong in the face of outside pressure. But something happened and this church had ignored internal threats. Let's look at it together. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Balaam you might recall, was a seer, a Moabite seer in the book of Numbers that had been hired by Balak, who was the king of Moab, to curse Israel, to pronounce a curse over them as they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. But it's a really great story if you read it. When he tried to curse the people, when he tried to pronounce a curse over the people, God literally turned the curse into a blessing as it was coming out of his mouth, proving his sovereignty and not allowing him to go forward with that foolish plan. And after failing to put them under a curse, he tried multiple times. After failing to put them under a curse, Balaam decided to go to plan B. He hatched a plan to tempt the people to idol worship and sexual immorality and to bring about their downfall by causing them to be unfaithful to Yahweh. And the people who, who fell for that temptation in the book of Numbers were judged severely. They were almost wiped out. And Balaam was executed by God's justice. But what, again, what does this apply to us? You know as well as I do that many think material and sexual indulgence is the way in this life to freedom and satisfaction. People around us chase all kinds of things, all kinds of things to, to scratch an indefinable itch. They cheat on their spouses. They fornicate like unrestrained animals. They consume porn to feel a cheap, fleeting substitute for love and intimacy. But these things actually rob us of real happiness and fulfillment in Christ. They're lying to us. They're not the pathway to fulfillment. The only way to be free, ironically... If you want, raise your hand if you want real freedom. Raise your hand as high as you can get it. You know what the only way to real freedom is? It's being enslaved to Jesus Christ. 
It is through being the slave of Jesus Christ that you find real freedom. It's when you're, uh, you're, you're chained to Christ and, and you're, you're chained to Him in unending service, in absolute fellowship. All else, everything leads to a different kind of slavery. One that leads to you being in chains of iron, a, a longing for freedom, and eventually to death and to hell. And people following Balaam's pattern had come to Pergamum. They had crept in and they were enticing the people to idolatry and sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans mentioned here are probably a part of this. Perhaps they had come saying that because of grace, good news church, because of grace, you saints are free to indulge in every lust, in every natural carnal craving. And sadly, some of the people of Pergamum were persuaded by this. And because of it, they were facing eternal damnation. And some in our day and some even in our church are persuaded by the same lies and temptations. But to say that that's what grace means, that now we are free to indulge in every kind of lust, every kind of desire, every kind of carnal appetite, is a terrible misunderstanding of grace. Let me read you one scripture. One scripture that will give you the best definition of how grace biblically functions in your life. Titus 3.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us, watch this carefully, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. It trains us, church, to renounce ungodliness. Grace never gives us a license to sin, ever. But on the contrary, grace, when it's real, when it's genuine, when it's biblical, teaches us to say no to all that's ungodly and to live in a way that's pleasing to our Father. Verse 16 of Revelation 2 says, Therefore, repent. If not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now mentioned here is a direct command and it's coupled with a stern and serious threat and Pergamum's church must sit up and pay attention. When Christ says he's coming soon, he's not speaking of his glorious second coming. He's saying that if they do not repent, he will come quickly in judgment and clean house. The command to repent, as it always is, is given to the wicked people so that they might obtain mercy. But time was up. Time was up. There was no time for delay. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said this. He said, though true repentance is never too late, yet yet late repentance is seldom true. Repentance is a daily work as much as it has to be a diligent and sincere work. It's more than just saying, I'm sorry, or more clearly, I'm sorry because I got caught, or I'm sorry because I don't like the consequences. It's more than just feeling remorse. If you want to know what true repentance is, true repentance is a recognition of how sin is harming us. And and more importantly, it's a recognition of how, how offensive sin is to God. 
And that, that recognition of its harm to us and its offense to God causes us to cry out to him that we might be delivered from it. Repentance begins as a change of mind about the nature of our sin. It's when we say, the sin will not satisfy me. In fact, the sin will kill me. It's an awakening in us from sin's deceitfulness. Though it begins, repentance begins as a change of mind, it's never complete until it results in a change of direction. And by this threat, Christ again draws their attention to the sword that he is wielding. He says, I will come to you and war with them with the sword of my mouth. Now, Hebrews 4 calls the word of God a sword. Um, In Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 19, as it is here, the sword is seen as coming from Jesus' mouth. So what is it that Christ is saying when he says, I'll war against them with the sword of my mouth? He's saying that those who do not repent will be judged by the impartial, altogether true, and completely holy word of God. And if that is the case... If any of us would be unfortunate enough to face that kind of judgment, let me just encourage you that your excuses will not matter. Your religious misconceptions will not matter. Your preferences, your prejudices will not matter. Only God's standard, which is perfection, will matter on the day that we're judged by him. Remember Jesus said that. Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, if we're all here this morning and paying attention and attentive to the word of God, your heart just sunk a little bit. Because if I asked you to raise your hand, if you're perfect, I doubt we would see too many. And we probably have to counsel the ones that did raise their hand. So consider Jesus's word. Therefore, you must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. You don't have to be perfect like Mark is perfect. Boy, God help you if you are. Because my standard of perfection is terrible. He's not grading us on a curve. He says you must be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. Creator, king, judge. That's your standard of perfection. So let that sink in. Marinate in that a little bit. And ask yourself today if you can meet that standard. And if you cannot, if you cannot meet that standard, it is my unfortunate duty to tell you that you are hopeless and you are doomed. Christ is coming soon to fight against you with the double-edged sword coming from his mouth. So the only hope I can give you is if you will heed my counsel this morning, and it's this. If you can't stand up to God's standard, then the best you can do is to throw yourself on his mercy. And if you do, if, if you realize that there's no way I can touch that standard, but I can throw myself on his mercy, if you'll do that, if you'll have faith and do that, you will find mercy. And you'll find it only by trusting in the work of Jesus. You'll say the standard is perfection. I don't have it. I never will have it. But he has it. And so I 
lean on the work of Jesus, the, the Jesus who died for imperfect sinners like you and I. See, mercy can't be obtained by your own efforts to be perfect. Some of you are still so lost that you heard me say that, that, that Jesus says be perfect and you started making lists in your minds of things you've got to improve on. You went into Tony Robbins mode really fast, how you're going to awaken the giant within and fix everything that, that's screwed up in you. And I'm telling you, you'll never get there. You will never, ever get there. You cannot be perfect through your own efforts. Mercy is founding in acknowledging how bad you need Christ's perfection credited to your account. And this only happens when we absolutely once and for all give up on ourselves and believe entirely in Him. Verse 17, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Christ concludes this message with the same urgent cry that he did with Ephesus and Smyrna to pay attention. Hear what the Spirit says. And I ask you, are you listening? Do you have ears to hear this morning? I'm glad to, to know, I, I know and I love this, that some of you right now are turning your ear to the Word. And because you are, you're promised wonderful things. This passage promises that the one who conquers will feast on hidden manna. Think about that hidden manna. What a great idea is being presented to us here. For 40 years... God had fed his people by causing food to literally fall from the sky. But they never understood the privilege of this grace that they had received. And they even often just complained about it. I'm so sick of this manna. Man, somebody whip up a cheeseburger. This is terrible. And when they entered the promised land, when they crossed the Jordan, went into the promised land, the manna ceased. It was over. It was done. And the people could now eat from trees and fields that they didn't plant. And that also was a gift from God. But God had told the people to store away a measure of the manna in the Ark of the Covenant so that they would always remember during those 40 years how God had taken care of them. But the problem was, so that sounds great, but the problem was the ark wasn't a museum piece. It, it wasn't a, a, an item. It wasn't a box that you were allowed to open or touch or even approach. It was way far away. The, the manna that existed was hidden. It was gone. The ark was the place where God dwelt above it and, and it was holy because of that. You couldn't go near the thing. But you have to wonder, in the generations that followed these days, how often an Israelite would wonder about that bread from heaven. Somebody's great-great-granddaddy would tell them the story of coming out of Egypt and they'd think, man, what must that have been like? To eat the bread from heaven. What did it taste like? How did it satisfy our fathers? But it was kept secret from them. Locked away in the Ark of the Covenant. And several centuries later, Jesus shows up. 
with a bunch of hungry people. And he says this. Wow. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus just dropped a bomb. Boom. See, they weren't really hungry to go out and pick up bread from the desert floor. They were hungry for him. He was what they were looking for. He was what they had been longing for, and they still didn't recognize it. He was the bread that they longed to be filled with, and he alone could satisfy, even though their eyes were too blind to see it. And so what I want to tell you today in the light of the letter to the Pergamum is that those who abandon any hope of cultural acceptance and kind of syncretistically making all this work together, your so-called faith and your so-called life in the real world, if you abandon all that hope for cultural acceptance and if you're willing to suffer, those who repent from the corruption that often infiltrates the church so that they might fully be the body of Christ, what's the promise to you? If you will do that, putting your faith only in Christ, you will feast on nothing less than Jesus himself. And Jesus' promise to you is that you will never be hungry again. Think about the things in this life that we chase. I mentioned earlier material things and sexual things. And every one of those things that we pursue always leaves us hungry for more. And Jesus makes this revolutionary statement. He says, feast on me and you will never be hungry again. Ah, man. God, set the table. Give me a seat at your table and let me feast. Jesus says to the one who conquers, to the one who rejects what the Nicolaitans and the, the, the people of Balaam are saying, he says, this is the kind of thing you're going to eat. You're going to eat the hidden manna. See, Jesus, Jesus is, you know, uh, to, to most of the world, in fact, around us, the manna is hidden. They don't see it in Christ. But to those who conquer in Christ's name, the vault of God, the Ark of the Covenant, will be cracked open and we will enjoy a banquet of the finest fare of Jesus himself who said, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Jesus also promises in this passage a white stone and a new name. Now theologians differ on this. Some think that the white stone refers to the manna because in the Old Testament it describes the manna as having the appearance of uh, delium, which is a white mineral. But also in ancient games, you know, kind of like the old ancient Olympic style games, in those ancient games, victors in the games would be given a white stone to serve as a ticket into the, the, the victory banquet that would happen after the games. And furthermore, interestingly enough, white stones were used by jurors to vote for an acquittal at a trial. Now, what if, so theologians and sources I looked at for this message all said those different things, could be kind of confusing, but what if, I, I, as I read all that and tried to compile that, I thought, what if in the wisdom of God, all of the above is true? Think about the images there. And what if he got in, and when he wrote the word of God, intentionally symbolized all of that here? Think about it. 
Through Jesus, you and I who have believed have been acquitted of all of our crimes. Aren't you glad? And through Christ, we have overcome the world. We've overcome the flesh. We've overcome the devil. And we have won. And by His grace, we are now admitted to His table to feast on Him forever, never more to hunger. But there's one more thing, remember? We also receive a brand new name. And if you're Christ, I got good news for you. I got great news for you. If you're really in Christ this morning, the person that you are is absolutely not the person that you were. You may think, well, I have all kinds of regrets because of the stupid stuff I did, the sinful stuff I did, the, the things that I was pursuing. Well, I got good news for you. If you truly believe what the Bible says about being in Christ, that guy, that lady, they're dead. They do not exist anymore in any form whatsoever. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And all the old garbage, Mark Sharp translation, has passed away and everything has become brand spanking new. And that's good news. That's great news. You're not the person you were before. Christ has completely remade and recreated you. The old you is dead and gone, and it has been forever replaced, forever replaced by a trophy of God's grace. It's not your trophy. It's a trophy to the praise, Paul says, of his glorious grace. You are a trophy of grace now. You're something in the trophy cabinet of God Almighty for his glory to show off for all the ages because his mercy is what saved you. His grace is what saved you. And he's worthy of praise because of that. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, help us to remember that. Help us to remember everything that belongs to us in Christ. We thank you that you have uh, delivered us from sin and from temptation and from the devil, Lord. That we, we thank you that you have called us to holiness and that you are, by your grace, you have saved us, you are saving us through sanctification, and you will save us at our resurrection and glor- glorification, Lord. And we thank you that all of this salvation belongs to the Lord. And God, we are honored to be trophies of your grace this morning. God, help us not be too full of ourselves knowing that without you we would be nothing, Lord God. God, we thank you that when we could not meet the standard of perfection that you supplied it through the work of Christ and have given it to us freely because you love us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that you would just be glorified uh, this morning and be be, uh, honored among your people. And, Lord, we just praise you this morning. Lord, I pray that those who have not repented of their sins and, and come to you for your salvation would do that this morning, God. I pray that you would work in their hearts. Don't let them escape your conviction. Don't let them drown your conviction or feed your conviction, Lord, but let them just, just come to you and, and fall on their face before you and make you Lord of their lives, Lord God, to declare you, to agree with you that you're Lord of their lives, God.
God. We thank you for that. God, we pray the rest of us would just this week grow in holiness, that we would grow closer to you, that we would hear your voice, and that we would, we would follow you as we uh, dig deeply into the word, Lord God. We thank you for all of this. You are a good and holy God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, ordinarily at this time, I would pronounce a benediction over you. We have one more thing that we want to do, and I'm delaying it because I really don't want to do it. But I'm going to ask Paul and Sherry and Pastor David to come forward, um, if they would. Uh, Come on up to the platform, guys. Most of you know at this point that this is our last time uh, with Pastor Paul and Sherry on a regular basis. They're going to be back and we're going to see them, but this is it. They have had the opportunity to retire to some beautiful land in East Texas where there's these things called trees and some water and things like that. Maybe some of you have seen those before. but um, uh, And so we... Uh, this is such a weird day because we are so happy for them, just absolutely happy for them and so heartbroken for us. And so um, we did not want to send them out of here without blessing them, without praying over them. Paul is actually going to be serving for a season as an elder at large. So he'll continue to kind of help us uh, through decisions and things like that with the church. Um, And uh, they have kids and grandkids here. So they they have some bait to get them back into the church every once in a while. And uh, and so we might even spread some rumors about emergencies that have to bring them back. I can't can't deny that we would do that. So, um, and uh, when he does, he's already said that he'll, he'll preach for us and kind of come and greet us. And so, but this is it. They're, they're leaving tomorrow morning. And so we wanted to be able to pray over them. And so um, we're going we're gonna to do this in, light of, in lieu of our benediction today. We're going to pray over them. And then when, when we're done, um, you'll be dismissed. And we're going to ask them to come down here. And I'd love for you guys all to just come and hug their neck and tell them how much you love and appreciate them. And uh, that we can send them out this morning in blessing. Okay, Pastor Dave, I'll let you start. If you want to say something additionally, you go right ahead. Yeah, I just um, want to publicly honor them. These are two people that that came um, and immediately had a desire to serve here, not to gain any type of recognition, but simply out of their love for the Lord and the body of Christ. Um, And I I cannot put into words um, the blessing they have been not just to the church as a whole, but um, to our leadership team. Um, they have been just so faithful uh, in loving and caring for us and encouraging us in the Lord and the gospel. Uh, and we truly will miss them, but we're really excited um, to see what the Lord has in store for them and their future. And they will most certainly be a tremendous uh, blessing to the body that they end up in in East Texas. So. Um, we're excited for them, but I just want to really um, take a moment and honor both of them. They have both served exceptionally well Amen. Uh, here and, and honorably, and so I'm thankful for that. Right. Father, it is, it is truly um, such a great gift that you yes. allow us to be a part of the body together. Thank you, Lord. You allow us to serve and worship together, um, Lord, and there are not many people I would rather serve with than these two here. Yes. I thank you for Paul and Sherry. 
um, and the gift that they were from you to this body, Lord. Um, we, we were in need of leadership um, when you brought them here. They were an answer to prayer, and they were an encouragement and a help to us. Lord, and I know they'll continue to be that. But I just, I thank you, Lord, for the time together that you've given us, Lord. And, of course, most of all, we look forward to eternity together and with you where we won't have partings like this. But thank you for the time that you gave them here. Um, the opportunity to serve together. Yes, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement that that both Paul and Sherry have been to myself and to my family and to so many people here. Um, I, am, I am blessed and better for having known them, Lord. Uh, and I just want to, I want to lift them up, Lord, and I want to ask, Father, that you would just prepare... Uh, the future prepare the way for them, yes, um, Lord. Not just, not just that they'll be comfortable and have the things that they need, Lord, but that you would prepare a way for ministry for them where they're going. That you would use them to be a blessing wherever they're at. That you would use them to be uh, salt and light to the people around them. Um, that you would use them um, as as faithful witnesses, like we heard this morning, uh, to you and to your gospel. Yes, um, that through them, people would hear um, the gospel and be saved, yes. be changed, yes. Lord, be brought into fellowship with you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would comfort and encourage them as they begin somewhere new. I pray that you would bless them with friendship. I pray that you would bless them with a fellowship of believers that, that loves and honors you and is committed to you and your word. Um, Lord, and I just pray that as they go, they would have absolute confidence um, that you are with them yes, and leading them, carrying them, sustaining them, that they would also know that our hearts go with them, our love goes with them. And um, uh, we're thankful, again, that we're still part of the body together um, and that we'll spend eternity worshiping in your presence together lord thank you for them and bless them in jesus name father i want to thank you for paul and sherry and um god i echo everything pastor david said about the blessing that they've been god and i just want to ask you to let this this uh, stretch of their life god just be so joyous lord that that there would be uh, just such a, a there would be such abundant blessing for them lord that that dreams and prayers that they've had for years lord would would be answered and that would come true lord um and that that they would in their new life in their new uh location among the new people lord that they would find um themselves constantly able to bring glory to your name lord jesus yes. god i pray that you would uh, open doors as uh, as as we Pastor Dave already prayed that you would open doors for ministry. Um, God, that they would, even if ministry looks different in the new place, Lord, that, that you would still, God, cause them to be effective witnesses. I pray that the, the light of your word would shine brightly to them and through them, Lord God, that they would be people who receive your word and people who proclaim your word and that you uh, cause them to, um, God, just delight in you. Father, I pray for 
the church that they're going to be a part of, Lord, that I pray that they would be a great blessing, but more I pray that that church would be a blessing to them, Lord God. Yes. God, we pray that you would bring them back to us safely and often, Lord God, to, to uh, uh, enjoy their company and, and to celebrate and in, to enjoy each other. And Lord, we pray um, as a church that has uh, sat at this table with them, Lord, we pray that you would cause them to be abundantly blessed a hundredfold for all that they've done for Northridge Life Church, Lord God. God, I pray that they would always have a name and a place of honor in this uh, church for the faithful way that they serve. And Lord, that you would, you would uh, just uh, be very near to them, God, as they go. We thank you for the gift, and we, we pray that we uh, send this gift out in blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.